Good evening, church. It is great to see you all here tonight and begin to look uh, back at our text and continue uh, understanding um, types. And, and then we're, gonna, we're going to take just a moment and dig a little bit and then get back into, uh, into types in our study tonight. So before we uh, begin, let's go to God in a word of prayer, please. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, for your care, and for your love. Hallowed be your great and amazing name. And we give unto you all the praise, the honor, and the glory. And thank you for this wonderful opportunity to open up the pages of your book. Please open our hearts and our minds to understand. And help us, Lord God, to be able to be renewed in spirit and to grasp what you are trying to give us, to give us the strength to continue through the week until we meet again. These things we ask and pray and thank you for. In Jesus' wonderful name, be thy will. Amen. Okay, we're going to go back and um, just look back at Hebrews chapter 10 and then Hebrews chapter 9 to to get us back um, on pace to look at a thread, just a quick thread uh, with Melchizedek again. We're not studying Melchizedek. It's going to take us um, at least four to quite a few Bible studies or sermons to really study Melchizedek. We're just going to, we're just glancing by. I just want to show you how we get right back to Melchizedek and how the Bible makes this loop when it deals with the Messianic that is continuous all the way through. So we'll spend a little bit of time doing that tonight. Hebrews 10 and verse 1, a reminder. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come. And not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually make perfect those who draw near. So um, it's just a shadow. That's all it is. The Old Testament is a shadow. So when we're talking about types, we're talking about um, the Old Testament being the the actual type or shadow, and then the New Testament is the reality, or it reveals the shadow. It reveals things to us. And like, like I've said, when you're studying, uh, what amazes me is I, I wonder, when I read through the Old Testament, how much I miss when I'm reading. You know, what is God revealing to us? What is God revealing to me? How much I miss. I read the account, um, and there are passages that you read, and if it weren't told us, in the New Testament, that this was a, a speaking of Jesus, I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't make any sense. It, it doesn't even sound like a Jesus passage until you get into the New Testament and you understand more about the passage. So the Old Testament is really important in our, our understanding of the New Testament. Uh, it's really really critical. It's it's a type. So they got used to blood sacrifices uh, over the years, even though the, the it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to remove sin. Uh, even though the Old Testament is just a shadow, they were used to an understanding that uh, in order for soccer or the blood of an animal to suffice to God for the remission of sin, that in reality, it is not their blood. They found out later it was Jesus, right? His blood. But they got used to sacrificing animals uh, and, and making a blood atonement for their sins. Chapter 9, verse 6. Now, when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually enter the, entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. 
But unto the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. So, so there's this in verse, uh, verse seven and verse eight, that when the, when the high priest went in and he offered these sacrifices, we have to understand there is a difference when you're studying the scriptures between willful sin and then sinning in ignorance, right? There's a big difference uh, between the two and a different way you take care of, of that sin. But here the high priest goes in, he has all, this, all the, the sacrificial uh, animals, if you will, the proper blood, the proper everything. He goes into the Holy of Holies once a year. And then in verse 9 says, which is a symbol for the present time. So here's that type. Everything that he was doing, that high priest year by year, and those priests, everything they were doing were nothing more than shadows of what was coming. That when you read the intricacies of Leviticus chapter, uh, the whole book actually, and you start reading about what the duty of the priest is with the sacrifice, that it, there's such an amazing method and it's so intricate and it's so critical that he does it right. Everything has to be done right, right? Year after year and, you know, everything they did week after week when it comes to the priest, everything was critical. And they were supposed to treat it that way. So he gives us the account in Leviticus 10 um, of Nadab and Abihu, right? They offered strange fires to the Lord. God sends down fire and uh, burns them up. They die right there at that spot. And then God reprimands Aaron and says, I will be treated as holy. And so everything in this divine worship, in this, this divine relationship uh, was to be treated as holy. And so verse 9 again, which is a symbol, it's a shadow. So what does that say about our worship? Right? How important is, uh, or should our worship be? How important is worship? How, what kind of attitude should we have toward worship? And so see, this carries us into that, that idea of, of being in the presence of God, right? When I'm in the presence of God, uh, whether, you know, I'm praying or in worship or whatever, Bible study, if I'm in the presence of God, what type of attitude should I have? And so, kind of giving us a glimpse of the, an understanding of how important this was. It's sacred, right? So again, verse 9, which is a symbol for the present time, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. So, the physical is a shadow of the heavenly. That's what's beautiful about this, right? So when we're reading the Bible, we're going, wow, God is taking us from the Old Testament, the physical. And everything we suffer and struggle through and learn and uh, experience in the good and the bad, in the physical, God says, you hold on because I've got something way better for you in the heavenly, right? So Jesus talks about that in John 14. You know, in my Father's house are many mansions. 
when I saw I would have told you, or many dwelling places, right? I go to prepare a place for you. Remember what I said some time ago about the uniqueness of that passage, that that place that he's going to prepare, he waited until after he became a human and suffered and became like us to go and prepare that place, which is amazing. It's another whole study within, it, within itself. So it's a, a shadow of what is good and perfect and is waiting for us uh, in the next life. It's almost like we, we, uh, we fight, we kick and scream in this life trying to stay alive. But when you close your eyes in this life and you wake up in the next one, you wonder, why was I fighting? Look, look at how beautiful this is. So God is always trying to give us a glimpse. And so old, the Old Testament to Jesus and then the New Testament to heaven, right? All right, verse, verse 12. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been sanctified, excuse me, defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So, so that type, what the type could not do, the shadow, Jesus did it all, right? So you think about life, what What's impossible for us is, is not impossible for God. So we just take everything to the next level. Everything in the New Testament goes to the next level. Everything in eternity goes to an eternal level. So we go from the Old Testament, the physical, the shadow, to the New Testament, that next level of spirituality, to the eternal reality that God has uh, for us. So then I wonder, looking at the consistency of the Scriptures, the types that we see in the Old Testament, we find the fulfillment in the New Testament. How many types are in the New Testament that we have missed because we don't understand heaven? You know, so, see, it's another opportunity for us to go and, and start digging and digging. I'm going to go to Zechariah now, Zechariah chapter 6, to learn more about uh, the scriptures and the depth of it. And this isn't about trying to reinvent the wheel or try to create something new or push the text. We don't want to do that, right? We never want to force the text. But we just want to allow God to speak to us, right? Because I know that maybe in your studies, I would assume, I know that in my studies, there have been things that I've understood in a certain way. But as I continue to study, I realized that I really, I really didn't understand it clearly. And I had to go back and kind of readjust some things and, uh, and try to, try to, to, um, to reevaluate my whole life, if you will, in a spiritual sense. And that's helped me a lot because it's helped me to realize that um, be sure you understand your topic, right? I told you this right before you teach on it. If you don't understand it, just don't talk about it, right? Just leave it alone. That's the safest way to do it in spirituality. Because if not, you lead people astray. When you lead people astray, and if, if you lead them astray and you never see them again, you never have a chance to make, to make that right. You don't ever do that. Okay. So let's look at the Messianic now. The Messianic, we're coming right back to uh, Melchizedek. Uh, Zechariah chapter 6. I'm going to start at verse 11. I think verse 12 is going to be on the uh, overhead though. And take silver and gold and make an ornament, ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, 
For he will branch out from where he is. And he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between the two offices. So now we're talking about the rebuilding of the temple in a physical sense. But God adds that spiritual connection there. Right, and you start looking at the text, and just imagine we didn't have the old, the New Testament, and and the prophet comes along, Zechariah, and he he says the branch, and you're trying to figure out well, what is, what does that mean, right? Who who is this branch, right? What what is God talking about? What is God trying to tell us? Well, you got to put together any type of of scripture that you have that you can connect, and so you go to the context, you go back. Backwards, maybe five verses. Go forward, another five verses. If it's not there, read the whole chapter. If it's not there, go back another book. I mean, go back another uh, chapter. Eventually, read the whole book to get an understanding of what is God trying to tell us, right? What is the message that uh, is in here that God wants us to know? So he says interesting things about the branch. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is branch. And so when you get into... uh um, Thinking about this, the sprout, the seed. You got the seed promise. Where was that found? Genesis chapter 3, right? As far as the Old Testament is concerned, the New Testament tells us Jesus was crucified from the foundation of the world. But the Old Testament tells us that the seed promise begins after the sin of Adam and Eve, and it speaks of Jesus. So you start putting together all these pieces and realize then, okay, this sprout, this branch, is Jesus, right? Um, but how do you, I mean, I, we can do that now, but how do you think they did it? That's why the New Testament tells us that the prophets prophesied, but there were things that they, they had to look into themselves. They didn't understand it, right? Um, look at Zechariah chapter 3 and verse, uh, verse 8. They themselves didn't understand some of the things that they were saying. Now listen, Joshua, the high priest, and you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, Indeed, they are men who are a symbol, for behold, I'm going to bring in my servant the branch. So again, the question, who is that sprout, you know, his servant? What servant? And this is where that peaked interest comes, right? Where uh, people who were godly and had a desire to know more about the messianic um, prophecies that were to be fulfilled... They began to look into the scripture to try to find out who is this servant? Who is this, this branch, this sprout, this seed? What is this seed? What, what does God continue to talk about? And so the word is being explored by people who want to know the truth. And so when Jesus shows up, right, he's born in a manger and all the things about that account. That's why it's a time to rejoice, right? So when you go back, you think about when he came to the earth, what it meant when they realized, they kept saying, is this the Christ, John the Baptist? Are you the Christ? Are you the expected one? Are you the holy one? And John said, I'm not, I'm not the one. And they're like, well, you kind of seem like you might be the one because you're different, which he was, right? Nope, I'm not the Christ, but he's coming. You know, and then Jesus comes on the scene. And so you can imagine how much excitement there had to be 
for those who are following John and understanding. And then John was pointing them to Jesus. And John says, I must decrease. He must increase. And then the Messiah comes along. And the disciples are walking with the Messiah. And he's doing stuff that is not normal. Right? I mean, he's saying things that are not normal. He's just, he's different. And you go, yeah, he's got to be the Messiah. Right? We, I mean, we, we, I mean, he just, he has to be the Messiah. Uh, Isaiah chapter 4. If, if you had time while you're walking with Jesus, and you're, and you're able to start piecing puzzles, to, the puzzle together, and that's what it is. It's kind of like a puzzle that God has given to us, that you start piecing the puzzle together, and you start realizing that God has planned this out so perfectly that it's absolutely amazing when he reveals it. So can you imagine? Um, well, you can imagine because when the apostles finally figured it out, what were they willing to do? Die. I mean, the early Christians, that, that was the whole thing that, that just mesmerized Rome. Um, over time, you know, they started re- realizing, you know, these people aren't afraid to die. That's different, right? That's, that's something wrong with it. Even when the centurion looked at Jesus and the way he, you know, breathed his last, the text said, that's a beautiful passage, right? He had, he witnessed death by execution time and time again, right? And Jesus had been uh, uh, scourged and, and just treated horribly. And he goes to the cross and he continues to, to, to under, you know, get enough, enough energy, enough breath, oxygen, to, to utter words, to fulfill certain passages. And, and then... He finally says, it is finished. And the centurion up, this, up to this point is saying, you know, this guy, is, he's tough. He's, he's, you know, in his mind, I would imagine he was uh, equating, equating the, the, the strength that Jesus was able to find to utter these words. He's a really tough guy. But then something happened that was unique and he had never seen before. The way Jesus breathed his last. And then the centurion who's watched death over and over and over again by execution, said, truly, this was the Son of God. I just watched God die. Because when he died, it was different, right? It was, even in his death, it was powerful. So uh, what an amazing, you know, as you, as you understand things, as God reveals things, it becomes really exciting to see that we serve not a dead God, we serve a living God, right? That's the excitement of being a Christian is, is you know, when, when people um, in the past have spoken to, to idol gods, they look at the God inside of their, their chest or on the, on the wall or whatever the, their idol God may be, and they're speaking of just a, a dead, inanimate object. But we speak to a God who hears us, right? A God who speaks, a God who's given us this word. And so it's exciting when you learn about the Messiah. So how did Jesus say? He said, well, the kingdom of heaven is like a man went out and he found a pearl. And that pearl was so valuable, he sold everything he had to buy that one pearl. You know, it's like, I'm willing to give you everything, God, to take me home to be with you. That's the excitement of being a child of God. We've got to find that excitement uh, within our hearts if we, don't, if we don't have it. We have to continue to renew it uh, if, we, if, we don't, if we don't have it. Look at Isaiah 4 and verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride of the adornment of the survivors of Israel. 
Here's a remnant. So there's a remnant that God is preparing. And the branch is going to come. And the branch is beautiful. And what is that branch? What is that sprout? What is that? What is it? Who is it? We want redemption. We, we beg for salvation. And God says it's coming. Right? So there's this uh, dual prophecy or, or connotation to the things that are being spoken of. You know, Isaiah speaks of an immediate uh, salvation, if you will, and also a future one, the Messianic in Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 11. We'll begin at verse 1. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1. Now we get a little more information from Isaiah. Then a shoot, verse 1, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Oh, okay, wait a minute. Now we're getting closer. Right? Jesse, Obed, David. We, we're getting a little closer now. All right, David. So we know now we got to connect all the prophecies about David, who will always sit on the throne, but that David would never have a, a, an empty throne. And that spoke of Jesus. You start connecting those pieces now. So we have this, this shoot, this sprout, the branch, Connected with David, you go back to the accounts in the Old Testament in Genesis, and you connect this genealogy all the way to David, and you go, okay, now we're getting closer to an understanding of this shoot or this branch, right? So we continue reading. Again, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And the Spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord and he will not judge by what he sees nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted on the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Okay. The spirit, you have the whole divinity right here, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God, God, God. Right here in this, in Isaiah chapter 11, right? The Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son. Or the whole, or God, God, God. That's the way I love to think about the, the Godhead. It's all right here, and it's talking about what this shoot this sprout, this branch is going to do or what he's going to bring. So Zechariah told us that he was going to build a temple. Okay, so let's go to the New Testament for just a moment. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. When, when he says he's going to build a temple, he's talking about the church, right? The people become the temple of God. So, it, so we, we need to probably think about um, how we voice going to church, right? We're not going to church. We are the church, right? We are individual, independent, walking, talking church buildings. So wherever we show up, wherever it may be in the world, whether it be in persecution or or in in glorious events, uh, we are the church. We represent Christ. We are the temple. We are priests. We are royalty. We are, as God might say it, we are it, (laughs) Right? We are the fle- the um, uh, the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And so I like to think about uh, the church as when you look into the sky at an evening and you see all those individual independent planets or stars. Uh, they, they're so spread apart and so and there's so much darkness out there. But every now and then you're going to see a star. 
And, and we are those little stars, if you will. We are that, that light, that, that, that reflection of Jesus Christ. That's what we are. And so we gotta be that always, right? Be that light in a, in the midst of a dark, dark, dark place, the world in which we live. Speaking of godliness and wickedness. So he describes that to us in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 19. Okay? The branch builds his church. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So that's everybody, right? Jew and Gentile. God's household. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So, what we are is what we've been made to be. What we are is what we have become. We have become, by the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice of God, we have become people who have a different citizenship. We have become people who are saints. We have become people who are part of a of an amazing foundation that God himself has laid. We are a part of the rest of the story, right? He's the cornerstone, the capstone. We are the rest of those, if you will, the small stones that, that create or make that that building. There's a there's an, a, a very powerful word here, and it's together. We are being built up together to a house of God. It shows unity. The desperate need that we have to defeat Satan. How do we how do we defeat Satan? Unity. Right? When we're divided, that's all Satan. When we're united, we win. That's how we beat Satan. Being united and moving in the same direction, remembering that we are not the cornerstone. Jesus is, right? So he's the boss, if you want to call it that. Uh, we all submit and surrender our lives up under his will. And, uh, and we live a, a life of submission to our God. And we're being built together when we do that. We're being built together in this amazing uh, temple, if you will, of God. So the Holy Spirit, the Old Testament reveals that, that Jesus, the branch, would, would break off or branch off and he would build this temple. And so they understood the physical temple. They went to it all the time. But this is a different temple, right? And so we understand that. Again, think about what they were thinking of back in those days. Trying to understand what does it mean he's going to build a temple? What does that really mean? First uh, Peter chapter what is he going to do he's going to build this this temple and he's the cornerstone the chief cornerstone of this of this edifice this building if you want to call it that Um, but the building is not uh, a a literal building in the sense of brick and rock but rather it's it's people the hearts of people right first peter 2 and verse 5 You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So there it is again, house. So we got, we have this household 
in this temple. We have this spiritual house that is being built up. And so now it's, it's another transition word that, okay, what does God mean when he says this house? You know, the household and, and we're being built up as little, we're these little stones that build up this huge, massive house or temple or building. And so the Bible speaking of the church, right? So you wonder about your purpose. Um, let's go to First Timothy uh, chapter 3. When you think of your purpose, you wonder, um, how much should I give to this house? How much should I put into this house? When someone says to you, um, you know, why do you always go to church? You know, they, the world speaks, why do you always go to church? Why are you always at the church? Realize that that's your purpose in life, is being a servant of God. Right? I'm, I'm doing the things that God commands, but it's no longer that God commands me to do it. I can't see myself any other place because there's purpose, right? There's purpose. There's a divine purpose. So the Jews in the Old Testament would, would go to the building on, on Saturday, on, on the Sabbath day. They would perform some kind of worship. You could only go to the temple a Sabbath day's journey, right? That's all they were able to, to journey or, or travel to the temple and home, a Sabbath day's journey. And, um, and as they were using, walking and, and, and going on the Sabbath day's journey, they were excited because that was the day they got to be with God. How excited am I to go to worship, right? You know, that one special day where we can partake the Lord's Supper, we come together as a family, we come together as uh, God's people, commanded by Him, and He's in our presence and in our midst. It's be really exciting to get there, to be with God. So this household, verse 15, 1 Timothy chapter 3. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So here the Bible defines its own term. Right? As we're looking at the household, we're realizing the household is the church. How long have you been talking about the church? Well, all the messianic prophecies refer to Jesus and his church that he would build. Um, Isaiah, if you will, for just a moment, uh, chapter 53, I believe, 56, I believe it is. Uh, I don't believe it's going to come up on the screen, but I just want to give this one to you. Uh, the, the household of God is the church. Well, listen to this. Verse 5, Isaiah uh, 56 and verse 5. To them I will give in my house... And within my walls, a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, which will not be cut off. So again, within my house, the house is the church. So God has planned this and, and perfected this. And here we are, the reality of the things that were to come. We are that reality. Isn't that amazing? So we're, not lo- we're no longer looking at a shadow. We are a part of that reality, which is amazing. All within God's plan and God's working. And how long was he doing this? He's been planning this from the day that he created us. Because the conversation in heaven kind of had to go like this. If we make them, we have to die for them. Right? Because we God know. He knew that we would, we would sin. He hoped we wouldn't, but he knew that we would. And he already had a plan in order. Jesus Christ again slain from the foundation of the world. He already had a plan to save us. How long was Adam and Eve in the garden before they sinned? We don't know. 
right? But they were there for a little while, uh, and thank God for that. But how long did they go before they ate from that one tree? Out of the, out of the what, thousands of trees that were there? It just shows that we have um, an amazing weakness, right? Um, just one. You know, they, they only have one. If God gave you one law, it's okay. I only have one law. How, how long would we, it's, it's like our children when you say, don't do that. <laughs> Why don't you say that, <laughs> right? Romans 5 explains it uh, great. Romans 5 says that um, without law, there is no sin, right? So the law produces sin. And what, is, what God is saying is that once there's a law, then comes what? Rebellion <laughs> against the law. And so uh, it's kind of interesting where there's no law, then sin is not imputed. There's no opportunity to sin if God hadn't made a law. So Adam and Eve could only commit one sin. And they they did it. Right? So so God knew that if we make them, we have to die for them. And He He put this plan together from Genesis and this thread runs all the way through the Old Testament to the New Testament and backwards. You just read it over and over again. Okay, one more New Testament scripture up regarding the branch or the church. Uh, Matthew sixteen and and verse uh, 18. So Jesus, he, he tells, he's talking to Peter, and um, you, you know, he's going to the coast of Caesarea and Philippi, and he's asking the disciples, you know, who do they say he is, or who's, who's the world say he is, and finally Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, and, and, and then Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon by Jonah, and he explains, this came from the Father, right? And then in verse uh, 18, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. And so, uh, these scriptures are, are, and, and so many more, right? We can continue with this, following this, this chain. They're, they're critical because what they, what they do for us, let's go back to Zechariah. What they do for us is they give us uh, encouragement to stay faithful to the church, to God, right? When, when people, I mean, you know, the older we get, when, when I was a young Christian, um, it was hard to, you know, from coming from the life that I lived, um, you know, to this new life, it was hard to stand up and say, oh, yeah, I can't wait to, to Wednesday night to go to Bible study or Sunday morning to go to worship, looking forward to it, and tell all my friends. Uh, they, they weren't interested in that. And so I had to make a decision, you know, this probably isn't really good this relationship you have with your friends because you're not really willing to talk too much about the church. It's your, your preacher speaking, right? It's hard. You know, you, you know what I, I used to do that thing where you, you know, you hold your Bible this way because on this side it says Bible. <laughs> but this side doesn't say anything, right? And, then, and Jesus spoke to that. If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. And I, you know, you gotta work through that. And, and being on the, you know, the army boxing team and traveling and all this so-called fame, whatever it was. Anyway, um, and then to say, no, no, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm not like, really? How, I mean, so it was tough. And so even for maybe some Christians today, it's tough to stand up. But if you have purpose and say, hey, I'm, 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 I'm on my way home. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not staying here too much longer. You can come with me or, or you can, you can stay, but I'm not staying with you. I have purpose, right? And, and so, in Jesus. So these passages in the Old Testament are critical in the New when you see this link that brings us to 
the next step. So the shadow to the reality to eternal glory. We got to make it to eternal glory. We're living the reality, but we're striving for eternal glory, right? So you see it. You, you, can, you can witness it. And you, all the pages of the Old Testament, you can go into secular history. I hated history in school until I went to college. And then I was like, wait a minute, that's in the Bible? Wait a minute, that's in the Bible? And I started learning history, real history. I guess it's still real no matter what, right? But in my mind, there was this transformation of what history really meant. History produced the Christ. When you study back and you learn from history, you look, wow, this is amazing. When you start studying the Bible and you realize the reality therein. Okay, anyway, Zechariah chapter, chapter 6, back, verse 12. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is or from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. So what did Jesus do? We look back in history. He branched out. He didn't come saying, hey, guys, um, look, uh, there's nothing new. He said, there is something new. I am it, right? I am the fulfillment of all these messianic prophecies. And, and there's going to be a new and living way that I'm bringing, not for the Jews only, as you all were supposed to be a light to the world, but it's for everybody. I have sheep, other sheep that you don't know anything about. He was at that well with that woman, and she was a Gentile, and she said, I can't believe you're talking to me. I'm a Samaritan. And Jesus says, it's coming a day when y'all won't come to this mountain to worship any longer or any other mountain. And so he takes them to this new amazing level. He branches out. And so they got to see and witness Jesus, the branch, branching out. And look at what else he does. Verse 13. Yet it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. Church, he did that. And he who will bear the honor and sit and rule uh, on his throne. So he's king. Thus he will be a priest. Oh, wait a minute. He's king and priest. Go back into the Old Testament. There's never, except for whom? Melchizedek, been a king who was also a priest. Can't be both. But Melchizedek, king of Salem, was both king and priest. Jesus is both king and priest on his throne and the council of peace will be upon, oh, excuse me, between the two offices. And so Jesus is the king of peace. So the Old Testament told us that. We know that about God. And so here's the fulfillment of all this messianic stuff that's being witnessed or presented to, if you will, the Jews. And so they're reading this. Let's look uh, at Hebrews chapter 7. They're reading this and they're just mesmerized. When I mean, you're looking at Jesus and you see him do something. And he says, that scripture has just been fulfilled. You know, a good Bible student would say, well, i got to go back and read that scripture. <laughs> I just saw it. I witnessed it. I saw the reality of the shadow that was coming. He's here, right? So Melchizedek. Melchizedek is one of the most um, fascinating kings, priests, people, if you will, to study uh, on. Because there's not a lot, four scriptures, I believe it is, that uh, mention his name. That's it. You know, in Genesis, uh, he's mentioned. Psalm is mentioned. He's mentioned in the book of Hebrews a couple times. That's it. Four, four or five scriptures. Verse 1, he, uh, Hebrews chapter 7, it says, For this Melchizedek, 
king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was turning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. King and priest. Now here's what's, what's, what's amazing. When you look at Melchizedek, even to Abraham, he just showed up. And what does Abraham do? The lesser brings an offering to the greater. So Abraham offers an offering to Melchizedek to demonstrate the greatness of Melchizedek as opposed to Abraham. And then 2 Corinthians 3 tells us, so you're looking at glory, so there's Abraham, then there's Melchizedek, and then there's Jesus. Melchizedek, I mean, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, the glory of Jesus, the New Testament, the glory of the New Testament is so, I don't know the word to use, I, I need to go back and read the text, but it, uh, it just says there's so much more glory, there's so much glory that it makes almost the Old Testament seem like there's no glory at all. So Melchizedek, who's greater than Abraham, who's offered a tenth, or offered a, an offering from Abraham, who had glory, Abraham had glory, Melchizedek has glory, Jesus' glory is so much more abounding that it just completely removes or overshadows the shadow, Right? And it makes it seem like it's in the dark. Like it has no glory at all. Alright. So what do you think heaven's going to be like? Right? So you see the, the progression, the patriarchal dispensation, to the mosaical dispensation, to John's dispensation, to the Christian dispensation, to the end of all time. Heaven, which is the beginning of our time. In a heavenly place, the we become people who never die. Pretty amazing. Progressively, the, the world of religion in God is the only religion that progresses from greatness to amazing superiority in an eternal way. Um, Gandhi taught something like that the problem with the problem is they never reach enlightenment only a few they say Gandhi reached enlightenment you know they tell the people but if you talk to any Buddhist they'll say no one's ever reached only Gandhi has has, has and maybe Confucius or maybe the other one but anyway Gandhi no, no one ever reaches enlightenment we have to keep coming back and then we're, we're in some other form and we got to fix stuff and then we, be, we die and we, we got to come back and fix stuff. And I asked one time, I was talking to someone of Baha'i faith, and I said, well, do you ever find out what you did wrong in the last life so you can fix it in the next life? And he said, no, no, you never know. It's like, well, maybe last, in the last life, he told me, last life I was a king. And I go, man, you really must have messed up because you're only a mechanic this time, right? I mean, nothing wrong with being a mechanic, but from going from a king to a mechanic, I said, you blew it. He's like, yeah, I don't know. I go, what'd you do? I don't know. I said, only in Jesus, only in Jesus, do you get this amazing blessing of progression in this life that carries you on to the next life and making us winners, not by the power of yourself, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
if you'll surrender to him. He loved that idea because it's kind of depressing to know I'm coming back. But I don't know what I'm going to come back as. And I asked him a really silly question. Maybe I shouldn't have done this, but I was, I just said, what if you come back as like a roach? I mean, right? Because you come back as some animal or insect. Well, how do you prevent from coming back to be like a, a cow or a, a goat or a dog? How do you fix that? He goes, you can't. What a, what a depressing life. You'll never find that in Jesus. And so that's what's so amazing about the hope that we have in Christ. And so it's not a hope uh, to encourage you in some way to kind of take just another look at how it all comes right back to Melchizedek. Everything in the Bible comes back to salvation. It always comes back to God. It starts at God. It goes through humanity. It comes right back to God. And we, when we leave this life, here we are in the flesh, we get to go back to God, right? Stay faithful to God. Stay true uh, to Him all the days of your life. So in a moment, we're going to have a devotional, and there's an invitation that will be offered. If you have a, a special request, a prayer request that you would like um, made, we can pray, for, pray with you, pray for you. Uh, please make that uh, known. Thank you very much for your time and your attention. I appreciate it.